So, so, so that. Now, we're, we're dealing with this issue of um, how to fight against the world of flesh and the devil. We all deal with indwelling sin. We deal with a culture around us that in many aspects is pushing against what we believe. And there are evil forces that are arrayed against us that are invisible, but they're there. And so we have this little diagram, the Senior Worship Guide, that I showed to you frequently, showed it man to man, something called the Vine Project. And then the diagram says this. It says that, that, that before you come to know Christ by faith, you walk without the knowledge of Christ and you walk in darkness. The Bible says that we're dead in our transgressions and our sins, but God makes us alive in Jesus. So you come to the point in your life where you understand that Christ died on the cross for your sin and you embrace the Lord as Savior and King. And then after that, you go into light. But as you go into the light, no matter if you've been a believer for one month or for 50 years, the call is to go further and further into the light. See, take a step into the light. The Christian life is not static. If you, you, you either go forward or you go backwards because you're going against the stream. You're going against the world, the flesh, and the devil. So you've got to intentionally go forward. And so the, the call in, in this is, is go deeper into the light. Go into the light. As the Word of God is proclaimed in prayer for repentance upon the Holy Spirit by the people of God. You, you go into the light. So t- today, the Lord is calling all of us to go deeper into the light. In fact, Hebrews chapter 10 has this incredible statement. Even in the early church, some people were kind of static and they were going backwards. And so in Hebrews 10, the writer says, and let us not give up or forsake meeting together as is the habit of some people, but let us consider how to stir one one another up to love and good works. So as we are in our small groups in Sunday Bible study, uh, having conversations around coffee or tea, we should be thinking about how do I stir up my brother or my sister or my brethren? How do I stir them up to go hard for Christ, to go deeper into the light? And so that's the call. The call is that, that we would go deeper into the light. The Christian life is not a static life. And so this, this issue we're dealing with is that Christ plundered the devil's power by his death upon the cross. In Matthew chapter 12, it says this, verse 29, Jesus says, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house and they say, well, how did the plundering take place? Well, look at, um, it's in the, I think in worship God, but in John chapter 12, this is what the Lord says. It says, verse 27, now is my soul troubled, Jesus says, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this purpose that I have come to this hour. This, is, this, this hour is his death upon the cross. And he says, no, rather, Father, glorify your name. And then Jesus says this, now is the judgment of this world. Now, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up, will draw all people to myself. So so Satan is defeated 
by the reality and glory of the cross where the eternal God shed his blood for the sin of those who would trust him. Now, but, but even with that, Satan is mortally wounded, but he's still active. Evil's still active. And the illustration that I used last week that I'll use several times is the difference between D-Day, June the 6th, 1944, and Victory in Europe Day, May the 8th, 1945, 11 months later. See, here's a picture of General Eisenhower speaking to the troops on June the 5th. Many of these men would die. And he's encouraging them. But everyone knew that once D-Day happened, that the Nazis were done. It was over. But, but, but they still fought furiously for 11 months on the Western Front and the Eastern Front until May the, the 5th. And then May the 5th, 1945, I think this is a shot from London, was victory in Europe day. It's over, it's done, it's finished. We live between D-Day and victory in Europe day. We live in this time where, where Satan is, the Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 5, a roaring lion. The Bible says in Ephesians 6 that we should put on the full armor of God so that we can take our stand against the forces of evil. And when the day of evil comes, we can stand valiantly. So we, we're told to put on the full armor of God. And, and so as we look at these passages, we ask ourselves, how do we fight the good fight of the faith? A disciple is a forgiven sinner who is constantly learning from Jesus as he or she walks in repentance and faith. So, so I, I fight the good fight of faith as I constantly learn about Jesus and learn from Jesus. And as I read the gospels, I ask myself, how did Jesus commend faithful living and how did Jesus live out a faithful attitude before the Lord? So, so I, I, a disciple is a forgiven sinner who's constantly learning from Jesus and how to walk in bold pursuit of the kingdom. Last week I talked about the centurion. And, and here, here it says, only desperate people with a proper self-inventory will truly seek the kingdom. See, as long as I feel like there's, that, that, that I'm competent enough to pull this off or, or, or I can do this and I don't really need any help, and I, I, I will never ever really go hard for Christ. I'll never lay myself out before the Lord and say, God, have mercy on my soul. So, so last week we met a, a centurion who had limited knowledge of Jesus, and yet he was desperate to see God work in his life. And Jesus responded to him in a way that is glorious as he did a proper self-inventory. Today we're going to meet the polar opposite. We're going to meet two men in a very difficult passage. This is a difficult passage. I'll tell you this, it's really hard to, to, to grasp in my opinion. Two men who came to Christ, I think, in somewhat of a, a light and breezy and nonchalant attitude, and Christ cuts to the heart of the matter. And, and Christ is calling us today to go deeper into the light, to go more fully into the light, to trust Him and, and to go forward. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 8 today, verses 18 through 22. Matthew chapter 8. Listen. The, the, the background, let me see. Large crowds are following Jesus. The last verse of chapter 7 is, the, is a, a, a statement about the aftermath of the Sermon on the Mount, where it says this, for, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. I and mean, they're saying, wow, this guy really can lay it out. 
And because of that, chapter 8, verse 1, when he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. So there's this huge people movement around Jesus. And that's where we're at in Matthew chapter 8. This, the crowds are following him, and two guys are, are singled out from the crowd and their statements to the Lord. Chapter 8, verse 18, now when Jesus saw a great crowd, great crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side, and a scribe, scribe is an authority in the Jewish law, the scribes normally were hotly opposed to Jesus, but this man was not, and a scribe came up and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go, and Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. So, so these two men, part of the crowd, come forward, I think, with a light and breezy, nonchalant attitude. One man says, I want to be part of this great people movement. Another man says, I'll follow you, but not now. I need to take care of family issues and bury my father, and we'll get to that. And here, here's my thesis. To fight the fight of faith, the good fight of faith, we must understand the call of Christ in our lives and give him our ultimate allegiance in all that we do. Now, as I get in this text, I need to cover a theological issue with you. The, the first, you know, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have their nests. And so so in, in the church, there is a, a, a movement called the prosperity gospel or prosperity theology. And this is, is new. It, it came after World War II, really in the 1950s. And basically, it's, it's a group of people who say is, they're over here and they say that um, that there is, in the atoning work of Christ, there's not only the forgiveness of sin, but there is a promise of health and wealth. And if you do not have health, and if you do not have wealth, it's because you lack faith. That wealth and health is a sign of God's favor always. Um, and I think that's heresy. It's just heresy. Heresy is a teaching that is not consistent with the orthodox teaching of the church. So that, that, that's new, it's unbiblical. In fact, what's interesting to me is, is one of their key verses to support their theology is 1 Peter 2.24. And they say, well, 1 Peter 2.24 is one of our key verses. And, 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 and I remember the first time I heard that, I thought, wow, in this regard. The book of 1 Peter is about suffering. <laughs> it's about suffering. And, and so verse 24 says this um, of chapter 2. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. They said, there, there it is. By his wounds you have been healed. Well, so, well the first part of the verse says, says that, that he died on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. It's all about our salvation. But that's why, listen, study the Bible. Read the Bible. Think biblically. And then you deal with stuff all the time. You say, well, that, because the, the book of 1 Peter, I'm telling you, is, is about suffering. Let me just read a few verses just to kind of expose this. Chapter 1 says this. You rejoice in your salvation, even though now for a little while, if necessary, 
you've been distressed by various trials, that, that, that the testing of your faith may prove to be glorious. You're going to have trials. Um, for example, just a few verses. Ch- chapter 3 of First Peter says, but, but even if you should suffer for righteousness, Say, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. For in your hearts, regard Christ as the Lord as holy. Uh, later, he says, verse 17, it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, suffering. Uh, chapter 4, this says, but, but, but if, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Did you see what I'm saying? Uh, chapter 4, verse 19, therefore let those who suffer according to God's will and trust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Verse 10 of chapter 5, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So, so we just reject that teaching. That's why. And I don't usually call names, but I just, I'm your pastor. I need to keep you in, I need to be honest with you. I don't read Joel Osteen. Or Joyce Meyer, or Ken Hagen, or Creflo Dollar, I think his name is, or T.D. Jakes, who's a great communicator, but he's all about that stuff. Or Benny Hinn, for heaven's sake. I mean, it's just kind of the theater of the absurd. So they're over here. But the other extreme is over here. And I'm somewhere here. But the other extreme are people who say, you know, Luke 9, 23, Jesus says, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And then they'll say, Jesus wants to crucify your nature. I'm saying, yeah, yeah. But I'm always saying, read the scripture in context. So, so you read Luke 9, 23, which is, yeah. And this is what Jesus says in, in that context. Um, for, okay, that's an important word, for, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? So, so to, to me, it's what I call the appeal to desire. Whenever I read these passages about uh, about deny yourself and take up your cross daily and follow me. I'm, I'm, I'm saying, here's a little flag. God tells us to close windows frequently. In fact, God's going to call some people here today to close a window because of obedience to Jesus. There'll be people, I think, here today who says, you know, I've, I've, got to, I've got to get out of that relationship because the person I'm dating is not a believer. Or there'll be people here today who said, I've got to change my lifestyle in this area because I'm I'm a follower of Jesus. But whenever Jesus says, close a window, he opens a door. I believe that. Yes, there's hardship. Yes, there's suffering. But when you close a window, he calls us to open a door. So so, uh, these people over here are are spot on in some ways. But but I think you can really kind of at times... Overstate it. Read it in context. When Jesus says he closes a window, and he's closing windows today, he opens a door. Do you hear that? He is good and he is glorious. One of the greatest statements I've ever read in my life 
is a statement by C.S. Lewis in a sermon entitled The Weight of Glory. It was preached in the context of the Second World War to some address he gave. And this is what he says. I just think he, he nails it. If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. I say amen. Yes, there's sacrifice. Yes, there's windows to be closed. But there's joy and purpose and hope. Window closed, door open. Window closed, door open. So please hear that. Please understand that. So, so let me give you a few verses. Um, this is Psalm 16. You, I can read all of Psalm 16, but listen to parts of Psalm 16. Uh, verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Chapter 16, verse 6, the lions have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I have a good friend who says that to me frequently. Man, the Lord is good. The, the, the lions have fallen for us in pleasant places. We have a beautiful inheritance, and it's so true. Or Psalm 84, another psalm that can read the whole thing. Psalm 84 Verse 10, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. He bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from he whose walk is blameless. And it's also, I mean, doorkeeper in the house of God is a whole lot better than living in the, the penthouse. Because we get God. We get the beauty of Jesus. Chapter, again, Psalm 84, verse, verse, verse 5. Blessed, happy are those whose strength is in you and whose hearts are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rains also cover it with pools. They will go from strength to strength until each one appears before God in Zion. Church, we don't know what the valley of Baca was. We just know it was an arid place that nobody went to. And the psalmist says here, as they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs because they've got the, the, the reality of Christ in them, the joy of the Lord. I don't, I don't want to overstate it. When God closes a window, he opens a door. Do you see that? Well, I think of what is said in Mark chapter 10 where Jesus says this amazing statement about those who've left father and mother and listen, verse 28, 31, uh, Jesus says this. Peter says, we've left everything and followed you. And Jesus says, Peter, I tell you, there is no one who's left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, yeah, sorry, 
and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. He says, Peter, when you, when you, when you, come, when you come under the lordship of the, of the living Christ, you have a, the family of God. You have brothers and sisters. You see, you see generations of people who are just faithful, and you walk with them, and you have hope, and you have purpose, and you have peace. Houses and lands cannot give you that. And inheritance cannot give you that. That is because of the kingdom of God. So, I, so I, a statement in the, in the worship guide from John Owen. John Owen, my favorite Puritan, says this, it is to be feared that most of us know not how much of glory may be present in present grace, nor how much of heaven may be attained in holiness on the earth. He says, well, we, we have no idea how much joy always. And listen, John Owen struggled in life. He had 11 children, buried 10 of them. Life was not easy. But he says, when you, when you walk with God, there's a, heaven is visited in your souls. Jesus says, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm the gate to the sheep. If you follow me, you'll go in and out and you will find pasture. So I'll sit again. When God closes a window, and he's closing windows for people, he is, he opens doors. Hard decisions, he opens doors. I, I believe that. And, and, and that is really, really good news. I've been thinking about um, of this, this, this passage and this, this first man, we'll do, we'll do the passage now. The first man comes to him in kind of a light and breezy attitude. He's part of the group, part of the crowd. He's seen all these people, and there's excitement. He says, Lord, I, I'll follow you wherever you go. Or he says, teacher. And teacher is the lowest, most bare minimum statement of respect. It means sir. Sir, it's a generic. Sir, I will follow you wherever you go. And then Jesus says, you know, foxes have holes, the birds have their nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Son of man is a term of divinity of Daniel chapter seven. Jesus uses that designation frequently. It is a statement saying, I am God almighty. So I, th I think three things happen here. Number one is there is a corrective to his misunderstanding of who Jesus is. Jesus is saying, I am not just a teacher. I am the son of man. So, so you're not just listening to a teacher that's got some pretty good wisdom. You're listening to God in the flesh. And I know a lot of people that say, you know, talk to a man this week. Jesus is really a great teacher, and I really like what he says. I said, you know, but, I, but do you understand? He is eternal God who is speaking. There are a lot of good teachers running around, but this is God. He's not there yet. The Son of Man. The second thing that's going on here is, is the sacrifice will happen. I mean, that's that. With persecutions, Jesus says. Sacrifice will happen. Um, and listen, sacrifice will vary from culture to culture. I mean, thanks be to God for religious liberty, for the, for the First Amendment. Thanks be to God for freedom of expression, of speech. Thanks be to God for that. I just got back from North Africa a few weeks ago and two weeks ago, and dealt with men and women from six countries. Limited freedom of religion. Uh, the people in at least three of those countries are concerned about imprisonment, 
and having their churches vandalized and or burned. In one country, everybody has an identification card, kind of like our driver's license, except everybody has it. And at the top of the registration card is stamped their religion. And it's in a country that's 98.7% Muslim. So if you are a person that shows your identification card and you're applying to go to graduate school, and they say, Christian at the top, it's very likely you will not get into graduate school. Or you will not be able to live in certain neighborhoods. Or you will not be selected for certain jobs. And that's a minimum. That's what they do with every day. And I look at us and I say, in our context, what does it, what does it mean to, to push against the tide? What does it mean to go against the flow? And, and listen, as the culture seemingly departs in certain areas further and further from any type of mooring, it's going to be, I think, more difficult. So you think about this. So what does it mean? It means to be maybe passed over. It means to be socially ostracized. It means, I don't know. You know more than I. But, but there is a sense of sacrifice that will vary from country to country. But here, here's my thought. If, if following Jesus Christ here in America in 2019, if following Jesus Christ does not push me into sacrifice or unchartered, uncomfortable waters, I am not following the Lord of all glory. I'm not. If, if everything is just easy and placid and I'm not having to confess my sin or deal with broken relationships or, or if giving to, to, to the gospel causes and giving my tithes and offerings doesn't seem mean sometimes I have to go without, I'm not following Christ. And so, so I, I just, am I, am I going further into the light? Am I asking? See, whenever, when, you, when you read the Bible, you go, wow, this is hitting me where I live. And I know God closes windows and he opens doors, but sometimes closing windows can be very, very painful. But an open door is coming. So I've been thinking about 1 Thessalonians 5, meditating on 1 Thessalonians 5 lately, one of Paul's earlier letters and in 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul says, um, always do good and do not repay evil to, with evil to anyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In all things, give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the Holy Spirit to put out the Spirit's fire. Do not despise prophecies. So I've just been thinking about that and praying through it and walking around thinking about that and what does it mean to rejoice and to pray and not quench the spirit and not treat prophecies with contempt. And I tell you, if, if you want to buy something that's worth its weight in gold, get, get John Calvin's commentaries on the New Testament. John Calvin died in 1564, but he was an incredibly good expositor. This is what John Calvin says about 1 Thessalonians 5. It just made me want to sing. Calvin says, for what is fitter or more suitable for giving hope and removing dread, then when we learn that God embraces us in Jesus Christ with tenderness, that he turns to our advantage and welfare everything that befalls us. Let us bear in mind that this is a special remedy for correcting our impatience, that God stands with deep affection towards us in Christ. I went, wow. 
What is more fitter suitable for, for, for giving hope and removing dread than when we learn that God embraces us with tenderness in the reality of Jesus Christ and that he takes turns everything to our advantage and welfare, that which befalls us because he's sovereign and he's king. And, and, and I'm, I'm saying that even when God corrects and chastises and closes windows, listen, he's opening doors. And I don't know what windows you're dealing with that need to be closed. We all have them. God's opened the door because he's Abba Father and because the cross is glorious and the Holy Spirit is real. The third thing I see in this passage with this particular man is that we're not home yet. We're just not home yet. Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have their nest, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Just we're not home yet. In England, a newspaper in the 1890s had a contest. They would sometimes do this and one, one question, I just thought of this. One question was, uh, what is wrong with the world? And there's a wit named G.K. Chesterton who won the contest. And his answer was this, I am. He won the contest. Another, this, another question is one I'll deal with today is, is, please submit a definition for home. Here's some of the definitions, and I'll give you the winner. Home is the place where our stomachs get three square meals a day and our hearts get 1,000. Home, next one, is where we grumble the most and are treated the best. Next. Home is the place where the great are small and the small are great. I like that. The winner was this. Home is the only place where I feel at We're not home yet. So many of you are, uh, have been very gracious to me. I've been in your house. And you'll say to me, welcome, make yourself at home. You don't mean that. You really don't. I mean, you, you don't want me to make. So because when I make myself at home, the first thing I do is I go to the refrigerator. I open it and I rummage through it. And then I'll go to our pantry and I'll get a snack. This is my snack. I'll, there's a jar of peanuts. And I put some peanuts in a bowl. And there's some, 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 some raisins. I put raisins in the bowl. Not craisins. My wife is a craisin person. I don't like craisins. So that's a real problem in our marriage. I'm raisin. She's craisin. So I've got peanuts and raisins. And then I get some chocolate drops and put them in the bowl and mix them together. <sighs> I'm home. And then if the shades are pulled, I may sit down in my underwear and eat them. Now, I promise you, you don't want me to be at home when I come to your house. You don't. But the truth is, church, we're not home yet. The Bible says we groan. We, we groan over the, our culture. We groan over what happens. We, we groan over, over people being misused. We groan over sexual trafficking. We groan over how people are, 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 are spoken down on because of their their, their, their minority status. We, we groan over what happened two weeks ago in New York and Virginia regarding the sanctity of human life. We groan over our own sin. But a great day is coming in the new heavens and new earth where we will be home. And the voice of the Lamb of God will say, welcome home. See, that's what this passage is saying. We're not, we're not home yet. Jesus says, you're, we're just not home yet. Person number two comes up to him again, I, I think a fairly light and breezy statement, and he says, Lord, 
Lord, I, I will follow you, but first let me bury my daddy. And then Jesus says something that seems, I gotta be honest with you, it seems really, really, really pretty harsh unless you understand the context. Jesus says, let the spiritually dead or the dead bury their dead. You come and follow me. I mean, that, that seems, that's just hard. Really? I mean, I thought the Bible says, honor your father and your mother. And I, th I thought the Apostle Paul, many years after this encounter with Jesus and this man, says, says that if, if a man doesn't take care of his family, he is worse than an infidel. What's going on here? Here's the answer, I think. The answer is this guy is doing the old smoke screen. He said, I know we're Jews here. I know we're supposed to honor our father and our mother. And I will come and follow you after I bury my dad. And maybe dear old dad had just popped off 10 bench press, 250-pound weightlifting contest things. Dear old dad is just in good shape. It's going to be 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 years. It's a smoke screen. And Jesus cuts through the smoke and says, no, I demand ultimate allegiance. Closing the window, opening the door. There are people here today who are dealing with that issue. Our family wants to do A, B, and C, which is clearly against Scripture. What do you do? You follow Christ. I never had to deal with this, thankfully. But I thought about it. I talked to my wife about this. I said, what happens? If our children, before they're married, come home from college and they're with their boyfriend and girlfriend, and they want to spend the night together in our house. So what do you do? They're not going to do it in my house. They can go to the Days Inn or the Hampton Inn or the Bridge Pup Tent. I don't care. But not our house. I mean, you just, I mean that's just a small example. They, we never had to deal with that. But Jesus says, I, I demand, really, it's all about ultimate allegiance. When, that's when you close windows and you open doors. Listen to Matthew chapter 10. Jesus says this, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. I mean, it's clear. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's harsh unless you realize he's closing windows to open doors. Or, or, or Luke, chapter 14, verse 26 and 27, he says this. He says, great, great cloud, crowds accompanied him. And he turned and he said to them, this is hard. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and his wife and his children and his brothers and his sisters and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Later in the passage, verse 33, so, so therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Next paragraph, same address. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall it, its saltness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is merely thrown away. And Jesus said, don't lose your saltiness, church, because of misplaced allegiance, because of not closing windows to open doors. 
He says, ultimate loyalty belongs to him. Here, here's a beautiful thing. And I've seen this time after time after time. If you want to be the very best son or daughter or wife or husband or brother or sister or grandparent if you, that you can be, then, then you make Jesus Christ the Lord of your life. And he repays you in incredible increments of glory. Because, you know, if, if, you, if you want to be a good fill-in-the-blank, Jesus fills you with his Holy Spirit and he changes your life and he makes you a serving, gracious, caring, listening self. I mean, it's, it's, it's just a beautiful thing. The, the most important thing, we have a wonderful ministry here called Reengage for, for Marriages. It's a wonderful ministry. And it's wonderful because it's biblical. And, and the primary statement they make week after week after week after week after week is the primary thing in your life is to know and love Jesus Christ as your Savior and King by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's where we start. Every week, that's where we start. And I said, amen. So we have a third person that we met last week. And let me talk to you about him for a few minutes, just five or six. A centurion who was desperate. And you're going to see throughout these passages that, that, that people that really go forward in faith are desperate. People who say, we've got this, or I can pull this off, will never go hard for Christ. So, April 25th, 1986, there was a catastrophic event that happened about 60 miles from Kiev in the Soviet Union at that time. It was called The Nuclear Disaster at Chernobyl. And there's been a recent book, a very readable book, entitled Midnight in Chernobyl by a, a, a journalist. And I don't understand nuclear energy, but it's something I can understand. But what, what happened at Chernobyl is that um, they were scheduled to have a, a, a drill regarding nuclear energy, the man who was supposed to be in charge of the drill for some reason was not there. And so the next man down was to carry it out. But he didn't feel qualified. He didn't really understand the system near as well as his boss who was not there. And the man who was ultimately in charge was, a, was a, a Soviet army officer, a hack, who said, no, it says here on my orders, we have to do this drill, this, this thing tonight, and we're going to do it. And so they did the drill and disaster ensued. There was enough radiation released and enough energy released that, that it equaled 60,000 tons of dynamite. The disaster was so horrific that it affected people in Scandinavia. The number of people that have died because of radiation poisoning in a very safe, safe issue called nuclear energy, the, the number of people who have died or been, or, or been you know, Affected by this is wildly divergent, but it was a horrific, horrific thing. The book said this. He said that after the explosion, many of the graphite blocks that were once part of the composition of the reactor core lay strewn on the ground. They were so radioactive that being in their presence for even a minute could be fatal. They just had to bury the whole site. The author of this book says Chernobyl happened for two reasons. Number one, Arrogance and number one, stupidity. And then he says this. This is blew my mind. For reasons of e economy, this reactor had not been fitted with a containment dome that makes it safe. The attitude was that Russian 
or Soviet nuclear technology was so superior to everyone else that no such accident was even possible. It happened. And I read that and I thought, that's a metaphor for life. Church, whenever I say, I've got this, I'm in control, I'm in good shape, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 10, be careful that you don't fall because you think you're standing. Only people who say, I really need the reality of Christ in my life, and I really need that, I really need you to teach me and, and show me. Only, only they are the people that go forward in, in bold faith. God closes windows and he opens doors. Let me tell you another story. So we've heard a lot about the governor of Virginia. Let me tell you about another governor from the state of Virginia. He was a hero of the Revolutionary War. He was raised in a wonderful home. And as a, as a young boy, there was a, a friend of the family in the 1750s and 60s that often came to their home. The man's name was George Washington. And so he grew up knowing George Washington and loved George Washington. And so this man's name was Harry Lee. And when the war started, Harry Lee, who'd been educated, uh, decided to be an officer in what we would call guerrilla warfare. He would disrupt the supply chains of the British and harass the British. And so uh, he, he was one of the, he was probably the only bright spot of the summer of, excuse me, winter of 1777 when the troops were in Valley Forge because he would go to Philadelphia, outside of Philadelphia and, dest and destroy the supply chains and, and harass the troops that the British have and then ride off with his troops. They were called the Light Horse Cavalry. He was known as Light, Harry Light Horse Lee. George Washington was so impressed with him that George Washington, who did not ever have any children with his wife, had a group of young men that he mentored. And he asked this young man to, to join the inner circle, which was an incredibly positive statement. But the young men were a guy named Alexander Hamilton, uh, Lafayette, the general from France who came to the U.S. at age 21, and John Lawrence from South Carolina, who died the last week of the war. John Lawrence was a wonderful young man. I mean, really a wonderful young man. But he asked this man, Light Horse Harry Lee, to join the staff. But Light Horse Harry Lee said, General Washington, I've been made for the field. I've been made for the, for, with my men. And so he said, go for it. He went back into the field, captured a fort in New Jersey that gave great spirit to the American cause, then went south and harassed the British supply chains and the British in conjunction with a guy named Francis Marion, the Swamp Fox. They became great friends. He was at the Battle of Calpins, the Battle of Guilford Courthouse, the Battle of 96. Highly decorated and loved. After the war, he became uh, governor of Virginia. His first wife died with three children. He married an incredibly wealthy woman named Annie Carter. Annie Carter and Light Horse Harry Lee had five children. But he took his wife's wealth, and over the protestations and advice of his friends, he became what you call a land speculator. He bought great parcels of land in what is now Kentucky and Tennessee, thinking that he could sell them off and make a lot of money. He tried to establish a city upriver from what became known as Washington, D.C., and didn't happen. So when the creditors came to collect their bill, he had, he had no way to pay. His wife had no way to pay. They were turned out of their house. He had to go to debtor's prison. He got out of debtor's prison. He had to flee for his life and livelihood. He went down to the Caribbean base and tried to make money. He could not. As he fled, he left his five children that never really knew him by this woman who, by the way, was a godly, godly woman, Annie Carter. Man, she, she was fine. Wonderful, wonderful. Not fine. Anyway, so Annie Carter, uh, and, and then he died at the age of 62. 
trying to get back into the U.S. and was buried at Cumberland Island, Georgia. His next youngest child never knew his dad. He was 11 years old when his daddy died. That boy's name was Robert E. Lee. So I, I, I look at Light Horse Harry Lee. I look at his, I think if only he had listened to his friends who said, don't do the land speculation. Listen, don't, don't do it. The wonderful book called The Rise and Fall of Light Horse Harry Lee. The Rise. I, I don't want somebody to write a book about us that says, The Rise and the Fall. The Rise and the Fall. But, but I need to realize if I don't want the rise to become a tapering off or, or a fall, I need to be someone who understands what Jesus is saying here. Ultimate allegiance belongs to Jesus. And if I'm going to go forward in bold faith, I've got to, I've got to determine that in my life. I've got to determine that he is Abba Father. He's good. He's a Savior. He's a guide by the Holy Spirit. And when he closes a window, he opens a door. So understand that. And I don't know what windows he's closing today. But when he closes a window, he opens a door. Let's pray. Father, we are um, stopping now and saying in, uh, at this moment in this, on this day that you are God and, and, and you've given us yourself. You've given us the word. And, and we want to encourage each other that you are glorious and you are good. And when you close windows, you open doors. And even when it's hard, it's good. And even when it's difficult, it's good. And even when persecutions come, you walk us through it. And um, you've come that we may have life and hope and purpose and liberty. And, and forgive us for being caught up in a world that is centered around town and country and cosmopolitan and Sports Illustrated and field and stream. Some of those things are okay. But forgive us for being tantalized by them. So we pray that you would bless us with your spirit, and let us walk in bold faith. Uh, especially, Lord, would you please have mercy upon us as we wait upon you and look to you. And, and, and I think in two weeks as we have the, the Global Impact Conference, oh God, enthuse us with what can happen in our Jerusalem and Judea and the ends of the earth. And, and I, I pray you'd move in the hearts of our campus outreach students who were at a retreat this weekend. I pray you'd move Wednesday night at the Wild Game Banquet. I, I pray that you'd close windows and open doors for all of us as we look to you. So we, we praise you, that you're our Redeemer and our King. In Jesus' name, amen.